Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly. Next month sees the welcome return of our Blades USA conference to be held in Austin, Texas, where delegates, including owner-operators and those in the Blades supply chain, will attend sessions on the technical innovations and strategic developments in the world of turbine blades. More details on that at the end of the show, but today I'm joined by two of the key speakers at the forthcoming conference, Carsten Westergaard, President of Westergaard Solutions, and Caitlin Reynolds, Manager of Operations and Engineering at Invenergy. Welcome to both of you. To kick off, I would like to start talking about the size of blades. So the pace of change in the wind industry can seem quite dizzying at times, with new turbine models unveiled almost every month. But what are some of the biggest drivers behind increases in blade sizes? And what do you think are the limits that blades can go to in the future? Carsten, do you want to kick us off on that? Well, the, the other day there was another announcement for, uh, I guess, a 110-meter blade uh, from Envision Energy, which is uh, for onshore machines, just to be clear, not an offshore machine. Can they get any bigger? Uh, throughout my career for 30 years in wind, I've heard they cannot get any bigger over and over again. <laughs> Pretty sure they'll get bigger and there's nobody that's going to stop it. What's driving this, do you think, Caitlin? Yeah, energy production. I mean, we want to be as efficient as we can. So you get a bigger rotor, bigger blades, and you can make more energy from something that you previously couldn't. So if we can make more, we're going to try. How do we transport these ever-increasing blade sizes by road, by rail, um, by ship? You say that there's no top limit, Carsten. Are there any kind of logistical concerns where it becomes impossible? Theoretically, yeah. <laughs> I think in practice, it's proven over and over again that, you know, there's hurdles. Uh, I remember some years ago when Vestas was rolling out, uh, I guess, a 100-meter blade or for rail transport, there were some issues with that. So the curvature in the rails in certain parts of, you know, the country were a little too steep. So they fixed it. They raised a few bridges and off we went, right? Same thing with lifting equipment and getting them on ships. Okay, it's a little too long. Well, how do we fix that? Well, we add a little extension to something. So it's just practical limits that are just being pushed. Do you agree, Caitlin? Are we just going to adapt in order to continue making these uh, blades bigger? They're looking at other ways to transport them as well in, in like terms of two-piece blades, blades that are you know modules, something that they can put together on site so they can actually have the smaller transportation piece and then be able to still have the longer blade in operation. But that is the way you know that they're starting to look at how can they transport some of these larger blades. Carson, you mentioned uh, Envision quite rightly with its massive new turbine. Chinese turbine manufacturers are showcasing new models with ever larger rotors and power ratings, while others, such as Vestas, for example, have decided that optimizing existing models and producing them at the scale needed for a rapid rollout is a better approach. I'd like to ask both of you, which of these strategies do you think is optimum for the whole wind industry? And is there a danger of being locked in a blade arms race at the expense of a swift energy transition? Carsten, do you want to take us through that? Uh, we're not going to make them any longer story. I've heard that one too up my career as well. <laughs> and it, t- it takes about six months and it goes, <laughs> everybody follows everybody. It's just not viable because, you know, 
bigger is more a annual energy production, and we're going to pick the big one, right? Because uh, it makes more money for the wind farm. It makes more money for the shareholders. You know, it, it's not a viable strategy, in my opinion, because you're taking out the main competitive driver. Caitlin, what, what's optimum for the energy transition to get there more quickly? Optimizing what we have or continuing to go for the biggest? I think that's a challenging question. From the engineering side, I'd love to have everything figured out, no issues, but that's just, that's not going to happen. There's so many things that you don't realize are going to potentially be an issue. And as you get bigger, things pop up that maybe you weren't anticipating. So you kind of have to keep pushing that innovation, but I would like taking a step back sometimes to make sure that we've got everything covered. So sometimes we're going a little bit fast for our own good. Is, Is that fair summary? I mean, from my side of things, it seems like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's fair. The innovation is continuous and it's just increment. Large turbines also come with their own sort of unique set of difficulties, one of which is leading edge erosion. Um, Caitlin, do you mind giving us an explanation of what leading edge erosion actually is? Sure. So leading edge erosion is uh, erosion like you would think of on any other surface, like a rock, rain over time, uh, something that's wearing away uh, just the natural elements. Uh, So on a blade, the leading edge of the blade is wearing away over time from different impacts on the surface. Typically, rain erosion is what's most known in the field or what what creates erosion the most in the field. Uh, Because these are composite surfaces, each impact from the raindrop will wear away the surface of the blade. Uh, And so it will create either some pitting or it will create some sort of like coating removal that will open up the laminate to the elements. So you'll have kind of these like gouges or worn away composite uh, that can reduce your AEP and your your airfoil profile that will, one, be costly to repair and two, lower your, your AEP. This impacts repairs and your actual energy production. So this is a pretty serious issue. Do you think, uh, Caitlin, that bigger blades mean there's more scope for leading edge erosion. Absolutely. The longer blades, you have a faster tip speed, and that just creates more opportunity to get erosion. Carsten, what's your view on bigger blades, more leading edge erosion? Are we barking up the wrong tree here? No, not really. There's a hit, sort of a hidden thing underneath is that uh, the torque in the drivetrain to reduce that, if you can increase the, the RPMs just slightly. Right, you reduce the relative torque that you increase the width with the size of the rotor. So there's sort of a, an inherent driver to go to, to higher and higher tip speed there. But, but the bottom line is they get faster and faster. Did a, a study of around tip speeds and, and rain erosion across the U.S. for the U.S. fleet. And till about 11 years ago, it was pretty flat. The erosion was sort of, sort of the same across the fleet of, of turbines in the U.S., and after that, the tip speed just went up. Erosion rates has gone up in that same time frame. It's very visible erosion when it's, it's severe, but in the initial states, we're talking about 1%, 2% annual energy production. You can't dig that out of your data, at least not efficiently. And so typically we see that people wait till it's too late, pays off to, to be up early rather than wait till it's almost broken, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think the old uh, adage, if it ain't break, don't fix it, is actually completely wrong in this case, right? I mean, you know, fix it before it's broken. I think that kind of uh, brings us neatly on to inspections and maintenance of blades. Over the last decade, owner-operators have moved from a system of not really inspecting their blades regularly, if at all, through to inspecting them at least portions of their fleet, even quarterly. 
What do you think, Caitlin, is driving this huge increase in the frequency of inspections? In short, risk. We've found a lot more defects that are present on some of these larger blades. And so they're just requiring more more often inspections. There's really not a better way to determine the health of your blades other than visual inspections. And that limitation causes us to continually do inspections at more often intervals. So means a lot more work for some of these larger rotors just to make sure that we're, we're keeping our risk in check. Do you want to add to that, Carson, uh, at all? Do you think there are any other drivers for the frequency of inspections? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, the technology in itself, taking pictures and putting it together in a sensible way, organizing the data, both the drone technology and our camera technology. I think the cost of those has come down through volume. The software behind these products and database systems have improved tremendously. So it's gone from you get 10,000 images, you have to sit look through manually, something that's, I wouldn't say it's automated, but it's an efficient process, I think, where we are today on blade inspections from from the visual perspective. I'm sure we would like to do more. I'm sure Caitlin would like to have more data from the blades, but uh, (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Not not that I don't want to know. It's just, it's a lot of data. It's a lot to go through. I mean, Carson's definitely right. There's the necessity of it, or at least what we're considering our necessity for it, but there's also the ability to do it, right? It's actually feasible for us to do quarterly inspections if we have to, because the technology is there and the price is low or at least low enough compared to what it used to be. I mean, that has definitely like allowed us to do these things. If it cost us that much more, I think we'd find a different solution. So currently, the majority of these inspections are carried out by drones, which may require teams like yours, Caitlin, to analyze hundreds, if not even thousands of images. How do you see blade inspection evolving in the nearest future? And what technologies do you want to see introduced? Carson kind of touched on this, right? The drones take thousands of images all the time. And so then it's parsed down even farther for the engineering team to review still thousands of images across all the different turbines, right? For how many inspections that are getting done. So even though we are parsing them down a bit, uh, there's still a lot out there that needs review. Quarterly inspections or even yearly inspections is still a lot for a fleet, uh, especially for a large fleet. Uh, So I definitely see that we're working in the right direction, but at the same time, I also want more real-time alerts, right? Is there something that we can use that will basically tell us the health of our blades you know, in real time? There's conditional monitoring systems for the gearbox. There's a lot more solutions out there for things that aren't composites. So if there's a way that we can use CMS systems for composites, whatever it happens to be, different sensors, that would be amazing to have real-time alerts. That way then you don't need to have so frequent inspections, you you inspect when something flags, but the systems are not quite there. I don't think any single one is is completely reliable at this point. Carson, are, are blades currently the poor relation and that they don't yet benefit from the remote sensor technologies uh, Caitlin's alluding to, which exist in other parts of the turbine? It's, they, they live in sort of a really challenging space. Maybe we're not looking for finding the smallest crack. We're looking to not miss the big one. That's kind of one of the challenges because other technologies are looking for the small ones and not really identifying that big one that suddenly occurs. But I think there's sort of an in-between. As we're getting more data, I think there's also the possibility to start fusing data from real operations. You know, how much did it actually rain, for example, and meeting its erosion? And was the turbine running at which speed? So, you know, we can start adding 
analytic and intelligence on top of, of the operations and can come up with some models where we drive the data that we have to help us understand where to focus. We've seen this in the lightning space where I think it's pretty common practice by now, getting data from the lightning network. We had lightning in the area. You get this strike areas, you know, this turbine, this turbine, this turbine was real close. So you, you release a targeted inspection and, you know, that's a way of using other data to improve these uncensored blades. There's a lot the industry doesn't know about defect propagation, i.e. how long it takes for a defect in a blade to grow to a size where it becomes necessary to shut down a turbine and carry out immediate repairs. How do you propose the industry should respond to these known unknowns, Caitlin? I'll start by saying I think we are trying to do that. I mean, between the different conferences and different user groups, people are trying to figure out ways that we can get to that point. There's talks about industry standards. There's talks about, you know, having best practices. We're, we're on our way. We're just not quite there yet. And we're learning more. There's, there's more defects that are happening on, you know, different blade models that are coming out. So we're all learning together. It's really fascinating. You know, I have my own opinion based on our fleet and what I've seen, my experience. And there's others that do the same thing at their own companies. And we'll, we'll get user groups or like, we'll talk about like, hey, here's this damage. Here's some background. What do you think? And we all have different answers. It sounds like you're trying to feel your way through the dark together, which is encouraging. I like that. It's not, yeah, it's not real time. Like I'm, I'm not reaching out to others and being like, hey, I've got this blade. I don't know what to do. What do you think? But, or like in retrospect, looking at it, you know, we'll say, hey, here's some examples of things that we've seen. Um, th- things that are sort of like, there are some definitely that we're like, okay, we know what's going to happen. You have erosion. You have this type of blade model. We've seen it before. You know how it's going to progress or maybe some lightning damage that is pretty common on a particular blade model, you know how it's gonna progress. But then you have maybe a crack or you have some unusual lightning damage or you find some internal damage that nobody's seen before, something different. And those are the kinds of things we talk about. And a lot of the times it's like, oh, it was worse than we thought, but it's very fascinating to see the ones where like, oh my God, shut that down. And then they're like, it didn't change for like two years. And we're like, what, why not? could be, you know, blade model. It could be location, right? What what wind speeds are they seeing? What is the load on those particular blades? Carson, do we need some kind of international database that everybody can access? You know, people have done this over and over again. It's, it never happens. And for good reasons, Caitlin, it's good to reach out to her colleagues and other companies. But by the end of the day, there are competitors. The same goes for the OEMs, right? And there are usually some really strict contractual things around, especially newer wind farms, where it's not really possible. I think OEMs are very skeptical in sharing information in general. Just briefly, I mean, either of you, is there a cost to the industry of this kind of knowledge gap? What's the cost of that gap to the wind industry as a whole, Caitlin? You could have really expensive repairs. You could have blade failure occur. I mean, it depends on the risk. It depends on the size of your fleet. It depends on the experience of the people at your company. Carsten, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think there's, it's been proven over and over again. I, like staying on top of the issues and taking them before they become a Category 4 or 5 is, is driving down the cost and the risk. I would add there is a large, call it diversity for lack of a better word, between each organization, each owner-operator, how they operate their wind farms. 
and even territorially. I mean, they might do it differently in one territory versus another territory. And so best practice is not necessarily the same. And I think that's one of the reasons we see so diverse approach to maintaining blades, even down to the individual wind farm. Certain models may have specific issues that, you know, you don't really need to proliferate to the rest of your fleet, right? So that specific wind farm may work on some very specific issues that you keep there and you don't put it in a big manual on how we maintain wind farms. It's kind of pointless. Caitlin, maybe have a comment on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think the knowledge sharing when I have this condition, like, for example, like the age of a site, I might choose to do different operations there. Do I need to do the more proactive work if I don't plan on keeping this tower for a long time? Or even if I'm planning on repowering anytime soon, I might change my practices based on that. But when I started out, I had no idea that that was what I could do. I just saw blade damage. I fix it. And then over time learned like, okay, well, actually this site, you know, has these particular issues going on. I have to think at the whole farm, not just my particular area of expertise. So I might say, okay, well, the blades don't need this work this year. I'm going to use the budget elsewhere where it's going to make a bigger impact for long-term reliability. But learning that is helpful from other people, just understanding like what is what is the payout, right? What is the benefit of me doing some sort of either proactive work or that leading edge protection? Is it worth applying to my fleet? if I'm going to repower in a couple of years, right? That payoff's not going to happen. The thing that I would really love to have is that understanding of if I have a defect in this location, how long will it take before it gets from category three to category four, right? What's my timeline to get that repair done? Do I need to keep monitoring? Do I need to repair immediately? Do I need to shut down? We don't have really well-defined. So you need some kind of predictive framework, basically. Yeah. Obviously, with the best will in the world of monitoring these systems and trying to catch problems before they become Category 5, sometimes blades do fail. And um, earlier this week, Windpower Monthly reported how operations were paused at the Mid-American Lundgren wind farm in Iowa after a blade separated from one of the turbines. Do you think we're recording a higher number of blade failures across the world and if so, is that simply because there's more installed wind turbines than before? Or are there other factors involved? Carsten, do you want to kick us off on that? Well, I think we're in a period where we're pushing the boundaries. Uh, we're, we're adding uh, new elements to the blade design. So, uh, blade failures sort of tend to occur early in a rollout, you know, usually fixable. I mean, not pleasant to have in your organization and come in and... but. But they are childhood diseases and they're rarely of any consequential issues rather than the economical loss associated with it, right? We tend to focus on these, but they are little blips in history and they tend to be fixed rather quickly for obvious reasons. We tend to make a big spectacle out of them, but I think the longer haul is really where we should focus on the improvements. Uh, Caitlin may have a, a different you on that. She has to face it. I don't. I can just read about it. My answer is a little bit different than I had thought I was going to answer. Obviously, the newer turbines, right, is, is what's most present in my mind because they, in my mind, also have the biggest risk. And I think that first couple of years during that, that warranty period, you know, that, that spike that he mentioned, that happens a lot with new blade models where something is, you know, different about them. These are much longer than other blade models. So, you know, you get that that curve that the initial failure in, in, as a young age before it kind of flattens out. 
looking at some of maybe like a, a couple models before that, you know, the ones that aren't the newest ones, I mean, there's more failures, but I think it does have a lot to do with just the number of blades that are out there. So I don't think that we're seeing a lot more like blade failures out there on their own, other than just due to size growth, you know, growth of the fleet. It's, it's not a larger percentage. It's proportional to the whole of installation. Sure. Ignoring the newest couple models that have come out because they're still in that like infancy stage where we're seeing more of that uptick. But I, if, if it trends with other blade models, I think it will flatten out. Do these sort of catastrophic blade failures that end up being covered by the media affect public sentiment towards wind power in any meaningful way, Carsten? I don't know. If it's a rural area that has a significant uh, engagement in the operations of the wind farm, so maybe they lease the land, and I think that has not a whole lot of impact. It's a blimp. Caitlin, do you think blade failures give wind power naysayers ammunition to decry the whole industry? It depends. I think, yes, I, in general, I think it can. We definitely have varying relationships uh, across our fleet of, of either landowners or people nearby where we have our farms. If people aren't are already not a fan of it and they see this, then it gives them a little bit of ammo. On the development side, um, we get a lot of questions about like, what happens if this happens on my property, right? That's a concern of theirs, which is very valid. And that's where we have to go back to our data and show, you know, this is not as common as it seems, right? You you hear all the negative news um, and that's what sticks in your head. You're not learning about all, all the other blades that are out there that are not having problems. And then what happens to it on my property? How good are you at cleaning things up? Definitely the more efficient you are and it's an easy cleanup, great then you can kind of have that gone and it's not a big problem. If it's kind of torn itself apart and there's pieces scattered about, then sometimes it becomes a little bit more challenging. So, you know, making sure that we have those good relationships with landowners is extremely important. Blade failures are not only a problem in terms of, you know, owner-operators losing money, but they're potentially a PR problem for the whole wind industry too, yeah? Caitlin, that's a very important point, and it's, it's not just true for blade failure. It's true up the operation of the entire wind farm. The engagement of the local community and of the landowner is super important, and successful developers take great care of that community. It's not just a corporation that has some machines on their land. Right? It's, it's really somebody that takes care of it and have aligned the common interest. So I think that goes across the industry and the it should go without saying, but <laughs> I don't think it always goes that way. But <laughs> I think you're right. And sort of coming to the repairs when they have to be made, as blades grow in size and turbines are placed in ever more challenging environments, the types and severity of necessary repairs for blades are going to grow. But is there a good enough industry standard, Caitlin, to benchmark the quality of repairs? And if not, would you like to see one introduced? There is an industry standard, but it's, I think it's older and it's not quite up to date with all the things that we've learned. I think we're definitely getting there, even if it's not official. I do think it would be worth having, you know, a nice procedure. The problem is repairs are challenging. They are very dependent on like, what do you find? What does the blade model? So a lot of the standards that might be out there is very generic, right? It, it's very bare bones. This is what you should be looking for, but it doesn't always happen in that quite that way in a repairs. I think if we could get a little bit more information on it, that would be great, uh, especially for anybody who has maybe a smaller fleet uh, or less experience or newer to the industry. It would be fantastic to have that resource. 
at least so that the vendors, right, whoever your supplier is, can they all know what we're all like grading them on so they understand like these are the things that are required. I think in an earlier conversation with me, Caitlin, you described repairs a decade ago as the Wild West. Do do, do you think we've at least come uh, forward from that point in time? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, definitely. It. I've heard many stories from initial repairs and they would just be like, slap some fiberglass on it and we're good and it hasn't failed. So I think we're fine. But I, I think a lot of the damages that we had previously, right, blades were initially meant like run till end of life. There wasn't really a whole lot of maintenance planned for them. So when people realized they had to do maintenance, it was a lot of just like, I don't know, we'll try it. Um, but it typically had was like smaller types of damages, ones that weren't as risky, I guess. We've learned a lot since then, and some of the repairs that we're doing now would never have been repairs back then. They would have been replacements because nobody knew how to complete those. So we've come a long way in terms of learning, like, how can you do those more complex repairs and how can you do them well? It's becoming more possible to recycle some of the composite materials from blades, such as the resins and the fiberglass, and some turbine firms are actively exploring that. Is there a market for recycled blade material, and are the processes for doing it causing more emissions than they save? Yeah, there's definitely people out there who are able to do the recycling. Before, it was mostly like grind it up, maybe burn it. Ouch, burn it. But God. however, <laughs> I will say there are, there are newer companies out there who have found a process to actually be able to separate the resin from the fiberglass, so that you can reuse the fiberglass in more than just, you know, chopped up pieces, right? You can actually use the fiberglass strands in the full fiber that they were meant to be. That being said, there are questions about, you know, what are the emissions from that process? Uh, most of the people that can do it have proved like we can do this. However, they are holding a bunch of blades in their like storage yards so that they can be more efficient with the full process long term. But there's the challenge once you do that, what is the secondary market? You can have great fiberglass, but it might be cheaper to actually just create new fiberglass rather than using old. So they're looking for how can we do this efficiently, both in emissions and cost, and be able to have a good secondary market where we're not overpricing this material. It's increasingly more difficult as the blades get bigger because we're pushing this everything on the design detail. So we want better and better and better fibers, right? And, and recycled fibers are usually a downgrade from your original design. It becomes increasingly more difficult to do. So because you're pushing everything, strain on the fibers, improving the, the resins and the fiber uh, chemistry, it's, it's improved, you know, over time to achieve these larger blades. This is part of the secret sauce in, in making blades bigger, right? You're having safety factors that you have spent a decade taking out. Some firms are starting to develop wooden blades for the industry. Is that a solution? Let me just a quick kind of take on wooden blades. It's, it's great. Okay. I think it was uh, like Micron started wood blades back in the late 90s, carbon uh, blades. Uh, it's a beautiful build. It looks fantastic when you see it being built. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think people, uh, it, you know, this is one of those innovations that, that comes and go in time. I mean, I think the, the problem is really in the, the resin type rather than like the fiber type, right? What is the material that you're using to bind everything together? That's really what the challenge is. That's where the recycling has become more challenging. If we could break apart it more easily, then you can use that fiberglass. You kind of take apart the blade in a more sustainable way. And so that's that's what I think the challenge is, either finding one, the solution to, to break it apart more efficiently or using a different resin system. Uh, I usually give the the example of like you can have chocolate chips and you can melt them down 
and reform them, cool them is more like your thermoplastic rather than if you put those chocolate chips in a cake. You can't get those chocolate chips back. So that that's the challenge is is getting those chocolate chips back. That's a great analogy. <laughs> Finally, I want to talk about the OEM turbine manufacturer owner operator relationship. And there's an ongoing discussion in the industry around the idea that owner operators need more information about what's gone into the blades and how they were constructed in order to operate them at their optimum levels during their lifespan. But turbine firms, due to commercial sensitivities in a competitive marketplace, can be reluctant to hand that information over. How can the wind industry resolve this stalemate to the satisfaction of both parties? Carsten? I think there's been a lot of movement in in this area by having owner-operators actually having engineering groups and folks like uh, Caitlin that are capable of engaging with the OEM at the early stage, right? I don't think that can be understated, which if you rewind time 10 years, there wasn't any sort of technical background in these to take in the information and do something with it. I think that is changing. Uh, that said, I think we're still at the stalemate. You know, somehow we have to get over that that hurdle because it's kind of silly buying a $6 million asset and $2 million off it as a rotor, right? And you have no idea what it is that you have to fix for the next 30 years. It's kind of a very uh, unfair uh, playground for the, the old operator. Caitlin, you are in the position of being an owner-operator. Is it an unfair playing field? I don't know. I Yes, sometimes, no, other times. I think, you know, the OEMs sometimes do operations, right? So they're in the same boat, and I don't see their operations being that much different than ours. There's certain times when I would really like to have more information, especially like a new defect has come up, a new failure has happened, could be serial, that kind of stuff would be great to understand. It kind of goes back to like the defect propagation. If I have an issue in a particular area and it's serial in nature, what can I do to prevent that from happening in the future? And we have a good relationship with our OEM um, because we work with them very closely and we have for many years and we buy a lot of their products. But that allows us to get a little bit more information them. I know there's a number of other companies that are in the same position and you know we're able to talk about it. We still don't get maybe as much as we'd like to, but we can get pretty close. So we can at least understand part of the root of the issue, maybe not in the same time frame we would like, but you know the OEM has to figure that stuff out too. I do think it would be nice to be a little bit more open. I totally understand why we don't. <laughs> they usually are pretty good about giving us information like, hey, we have found this issue. We will release this information out to the people that it affects and helping us with that is still important and is still very valuable. Do you think there's enough give and take? I wouldn't say I would know that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I see at every conference we have, uh, it's, a, it's a repeat question and a repeat request and it's always comes up with a taste of sarcasm. So... <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like uh, it sounds like this is a work in progress. Then, uh, so you know, but perhaps, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> perhaps watch this space. I want to say thank you very much for joining us on this episode, Carsten Westergaard. Great conversation, Ian. Thank you. And Caitlin Reynolds. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. 
As I mentioned at the start of the episode, the Blades USA conference returns to Austin, Texas from the 22nd to the 23rd of March. For more details, including how to buy a ticket for the event, visit bladesusaforum.com. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you.